Well, I want you to imagine with me a church, a miraculous church. Imagine a church where pride has been completely dispensed with, totally gone. Imagine a church where the servants of that church, that is the whole church family, go about life together utterly unconcerned about the judgment of others, even unconcerned about their own opinion of how they're going about the ministry in that place, free from endless games of comparison, free from endless games of competition with each other. Imagine a church where not just coats and umbrellas but pride is left at the door as we enter a place like this. What would it be like? Imagine how it would change Sundays when we meet like this. If if you were part of a church like that, what would you expect to find there? What would you hope to find there? Who would you hope to find there? What, what, What difference would it make to what we do after the service? What effect would it have on the role I think I have in this place? What about the relationships in a church like that? How would they be different? Who would I spend time with in a church like that? What would be the tone and the content of my conversations with others? How would I approach friendship in a church like that? How would I approach my relationship to those outside the church family? And what of my ministry in a church like that? Would it change the way I went about the ministry I was involved in? Would it change the sort of ministries that I'd want to be involved in? What setbacks in ministry would I be willing to endure in that place? What cost would I be willing to pay? What would give me a buzz in ministry, the sort of thing that would be the highlight, that make it worthwhile? What would it be in a church like that? What does Christian ministry look like when pride has been left at the door? Well, 1 Corinthians 4 is a picture of just such a thing. And it's a picture that Paul paints for a church that is far from this image. As we've seen over these weeks looking at this letter together, they are a church plagued and shaped by pride. Pride in their leaders, pride in themselves and pride in their comparisons one to another. And this pride was destroying the church of God at Corinth. It was leading to massive divisions where there should have been none. And so what Paul does, as he has been doing all throughout this letter, is he confronts that plague of pride with one simple and constant call, know Christ and him crucified. And as we get to chapter 3, verse 21, he says, if you know Christ, then it will mean this, no more boasting about men. No more. And what he does for us in 1 Corinthians 4 is he outlines what it would look like if we were like that, if pride had been left at the door and we lived life together as humble servants. But before we see this remarkable picture, I think there are two problems that we need to deal with if we're going to see it clearly. The first of them struck me this week. As we were imagining that church, this church where pride has been dispensed with, a church of humble servants, do we really think it could exist here? I suspect that that as nice as it is to imagine and think about this utopian picture of church is just that. Nice to think about, but it's just not going to happen, is it? And the reason that's not going to happen is our second problem. We get used to the problem of pride. It doesn't surprise us that it's here. It doesn't even trouble us that it's here. It's just life, real life. But here's the thing. Here is why Paul is so passionately calling on the Corinthians to have no more pride. God hates pride. 
More than any other wrong turn that we could make as a church family, God hates human boasting. All the way through the scriptures, he says it again and again. Let me quote Proverbs 16. He says, be sure of this, the Lord detests all the proud of heart, hates it. And pride is the root problem in the church of Corinth. And they're not alone, are they? Because it is the root cause of all human sin. That's what's behind it. A heart that exalts itself over God. A a heart that takes credit for what God alone can do. A self-reliant, self-sufficient heart. God hates pride because he loves us. A prideful human heart is a human all messed up. A human totally curved in on themselves rather than delighting in their God. You see, what pride does is it snatches away our greatest joy, knowledge and love of a gloriously good God. It's no wonder that Paul says, no more pride. And the word he uses for pride throughout this passage drives home just how seriously we need to take this problem and how wonderful his solution is. You see, the word pride literally means overinflation. It's it's the image of a part of the body that has swelled, inflamed, far beyond its normal proportions. It's like a bloated stomach. It's not full. It's full of gas and ready to burst and the results will not be pleasant. Christian pastor Tim Keller, speaking of this word pride, says, the prideful heart, the human heart, is always busy, busy with two tasks. Firstly, the task of filling itself up with acceptance by others, with with accolades, with praise and then busy trying to compare itself. Pride is by nature competitive. Pride wants to win. Can you imagine a worse trait in a church? When our pride is dented because our ministry is less noticed than others. When we ask, why is that person up the front again? When we hear the point of a sermon and we think, well, I know I'm not as bad as some when it comes to that. I hope they're listening. God hates pride. He hates it because he loves us. And so Paul says, no more pride. And instead he shows us what it would look like to humbly go about service without any pride involved. And if you look at it uh, here in 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians, his approach, I think, is somewhat dangerous. He says, if you want to see a humble Christian, a humble Christian servant, let me show you exhibit A, me. Dangerous approach, isn't it? It sounds somewhat arrogant. If you want to see humble humility personified, here I am. Well, hear him out. Because I suspect by the end of this passage, you, you won't think for a second that Paul is proud. And as he says to us in verse 6, he speaks of these things for our benefit. And by the time you get to verse 16 of of chapter 4, he says, I want you to imitate me. That's why I'm telling you this. And so let's see his picture of humble Christian ministry. And really, there's two parts to it. The first you see in verses 1 to 6 is this. Humble Christian ministry is all about faithfulness. Firstly, in verse 1, we are to be faithful to who we are. Paul says, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Paul says, that's who I am. I'm a servant. And the word he uses for servant here is drawn from the the image of a Roman galley ship. He's talking about the under rowers, you know, the the ones with little oars out the side. You didn't actually see them, you just saw the oar moving. 
vital to the sort of the progress of the ship but totally unnoticed. He says, that's who I am. This is who we are as well in this place. Such a helpful image, I think. It means that in this place we should expect to find no passenger seats. This is not a cruise ship. We should expect that our roles will be crucial, vital to the progress of this church but expect not to be noticed by others as we go about them. Expect it to be hard work. Expect not always to see firsthand the result of your hard work, but expect it will make a difference. I was thinking about that image uh, during the week and uh, one of the immediate ministries in this place that came to my mind was to do with Christianity Explored. We've got a Christianity Explored course going at the moment. There's a number of people that need to be involved to make it happen. Somebody is, is giving the talks, there's table leaders, but then there's a whole bunch of people who are literally the under rowers, the, the slaves in the galley, cooking the meal. And you know, that's exactly the way it should be. These uh, wonderful people slaving away each week to provide this environment so people can hear the wonderful news about Jesus. That's a good picture of what being a Christian minister is all about. We are to be faithful to who we are. And secondly, in verses 1 and 2, we are to be faithful to the task he gives us. We are servants who are, you see there, entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required of those who have been given a trust that they must prove faithful. I reckon there's so much encouragement here. God doesn't give us meaningless roles in this place. Paul switches metaphors all of a sudden. Once he was talking about rowers and all of a sudden we're talking about stewards or or literally the chief butler in a great house. He says, that's who you are. And do you see what you're serving, what's on your tray as you wander around the house? It's not pigs in a blanket or whatever else you might have. Something better than that. It's the secret things of God. Literally the mystery of God, which is Paul's technical word for the gospel that was long hidden but now in the cross of Christ has been revealed gloriously. You walk around the household of God with the gospel. What a task. Whatever your role is here, that's what you are to serve with. And so if you're an EFK leader on a Friday night, serve them with the gospel. If you're sitting on a table at Friday Club as well as serving a tasty meal, serve them with the gospel. That's what the master of the house is asking of you. I went to a group during the week, uh, the new mums group. Uh, It's quite a frightening group to walk into over in the lounge on a Thursday. There's a sea of mums and young children there. It's a group that's uh, been going for for many years, uh, led by Jill Lee and Fiona Bull and Joy Lockwood and I'm sure many others. Decades of serving young mums, finding their feet as parents with the gospel. And here's what God expects of us as we serve him in this way. Faithfulness. That's his only measure. We are to be faithful to who we are, faithful to the task he sets us, and then thirdly, faithful to the judge of that task. Have a look at verse 3. If you want to see how radical Christianity really is and Christian service really is, here it is in full flight. Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. You see, faithful service does two things. It totally disregards human judgment and it totally regards God's judgment. 
Paul's only concern in his ministry is to be found faithful by his God. It is therefore for him no matter whatsoever what others think of his ministry. For Paul, there there is no day in his life where, where the court of human opinion matters anywhere near as much as the day he will stand before his God. And that God will give his verdict on Paul's work. It's a remarkable image, isn't it? This is what it looks like to serve when pride has been left at the door. Imagine going about your ministry in this place utterly unaffected by the opinion of others, by the verdict of others. You play in the music group and you pull out a bung note and you're utterly unaffected. You lead a small group and at the end of the night you're thinking to yourself, did I lead that well? I wonder what they're thinking about how I went about leading that. And then there are the more caustic judgments that come our way in ministry, the, the angry letter, the, the verbal barrage, whatever it might be. Paul says, they don't even register with me. Wouldn't that be great? How do you get to that sort of place where the judgment of others flies off you as if you were made of Teflon? Well, in one sense, our culture knows the answer to that question. What Paul said at the start of verse 3 sounds remarkably like our world, I think. Don't worry how others view you. All that matters is what you think. As long as you're happy, then then don't worry what what everyone else is thinking about it. But no, says Paul, that's not how it goes at all. Not with humble Christian service. I don't even care what I think, says Paul. When he says the court of human opinion here is of no matter to him, he's including his opinion. And here you start to see how off the map this picture is. This is not human thinking, is it? This is Christian thinking. The thinking that comes from having the mind of Christ, as we saw a few weeks ago, it's the thinking that comes from having your heart transformed by the cross. Because the truth is that Paul had, in many ways, lots of reasons to be proud, lots of reasons to be confident in his own opinion of himself. Philippians 3 tells us that you know, his CV is utterly impressive compared to ours and yet on the other hand he knows that he has also he's lived life a bit like a car crash 1 Timothy 1 he says I am the chief of sinners he's a Jekyll and Hyde isn't he deeply impressive and also deeply flawed and do you know what he says neither of those things matter to me you remember how he introduced himself in chapter 1 he is a child of God's grace that's who I am Everything I have, I received from his cross. I am strong and blameless. That's who I am in God's verdict. And I am called to serve him. And so I disregard completely human verdicts and I regard completely God's verdict on my life. And so first that means, just see there in verse 4, what he does with his ministry is he's very careful with it. The, the impression you could get from verse 3 is he, he, does, he just sort of goes about it, disregards other people's opinions, and just charges ahead. But no, he's careful. He measures his ministry not against human standards but God's and as a result his conscience is clear. But he knows, as he says in verse 4, even after that, that doesn't make him innocent. There is a verdict yet to come. The Lord will judge. A humble servant disregards other judgments and waits and trusts that one. See it there in verse 5? Wait till the Lord comes, he says. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Now, don't miss that last bit. 
How amazing is that? What a wonderful expectation to have as a Christian. Each will receive his praise from God. The king of the universe who has endured from us endless rebellion, endless doubts, endless unfaithfulness, who had to buy us back with his own son that he loves, climaxes his rescue of you by what? Praising you. Here you see how powerful God's grace is. He takes sinners like you and me and he saves us. He calls us to his service. He gives us everything we'll need to do that well. He provides the growth and then he praises you for it. How great is our God? Humble Christian ministry is all about faithfulness to a God like that. So there's the first picture of Christian ministry. It's about faithfulness. And secondly, as our passage continues in verse 6 onwards, we see that it's all about weakness. The Corinthians, as they went about church life, there was no weakness to it whatsoever. That, that was utterly disregarded. That was a ridiculous thing for a church to be, a ministry to be about. And Paul says it's because they've forgotten Firstly, you see there in verse 7, they've forgotten the past. He shows them how they've forgotten the past by asking them a series of questions. He says, what makes you different to anyone else? What do you have that, that wasn't given to you as a gift? And if it was given to you as a gift, why do you parade around as if you earned it? Paul's essentially saying, how can any person with any grasp of reality stand right next to the cross of Christ and boast You know there is no difference between you and any other Christian in this room. All have sinned. You know everything you have has come from his grace. That's what the Corinthians had forgotten. They'd forgotten their rescue. I was thinking about that during the week and I was reminded of Tony Bullimore, the famous British uh, long-distance yacht racer. Back in 1997, you may remember it, he was competing in the -the round-the-world yacht race and he got himself lost and eventually the boat was capsized miles and miles and miles off the Australian coast. It took uh, the HMAS Adelaide, an Australian naval vessel, five days at full speed to reach this guy. At great cost, at huge risk. It was an amazing moment. I can still see the moment that that I saw on television in Australia as this little head pops up above the capsized boat and there's the rescue vessel there. But if you look at his website, somehow over time he's become the hero of the story. He's the story of of a great survivor, a can-do guy who, who you can actually book for your dinner parties to tell you how to be a survivor and a hero in life. Truth is, without the rescue, he was dead. The same danger, I suspect, is there for us when we forget our past. When we fail to remember, we were rescued. That's why we're a Christian. That's why we grow as a Christian. We have nothing to do with it. We have nothing that we did not receive. They've forgotten their past, but also, verse 8, they've forgotten what the present time is like. He says to them, uh, you know, you, you parade around as if it's the last day already, that you're in heaven and you've made it. It's the victory lap now. You, you've got all you want. You're kings. Paul says you're claiming things that are for not yet. They're to come, yes. And it's going to be great. He says, I wish you had become kings because I'd be there with you and we'd be there before God and won't that day be great? But this day is not that day. 
That day is yet to come. It will come with the resurrection of the dead when all the enemies of God are defeated, Paul will say later in the letter. They've forgotten the present time and to show them how they've forgotten it and to puncture their inflated pride, Paul says, well, let me tell you what the present time is really like if you're a Christian servant. Have a look at verse 9. He says, it seems to me, this is my impression of the present time, if you, if you want the truth, that God has put the apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. Christian ministry, this side of that day, is all about weakness. Here in verse 9, you, you see the true state of affairs in this present hour. Rather than reigning as kings, we're not on some victory lap. It's not like a sporting team with a great victory holding up the trophy. We're on a procession, but it's one into the arena. To do what do you see it there? To die. And as verse 9 goes on, you see God has designed it this way. The reason they are on display like this, they are being set up for the whole world to see, in fact the whole universe to see, even the heavenly realm to see God's wise and powerful grace. The Corinthians have totally missed the point of what it means to be God's people. They too should be rejoicing in this weakness and joining the procession. Paul drives the point home for us with this amazing and moving picture of what life is like for him as a servant. He says, To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands and when we are cursed we bless. And when we are persecuted we endure it and when we are slandered we answer kindly. Up to this moment we have become the scum of the earth the refuse of the world. As Paul's ministry comes into full view here, you start to see someone else, don't you? You start to see his ministry is modelled on another. A minister of the cross of Christ cannot help but follow the Lord of that cross. The path being described for us here is the path that our Lord has already walked and anyone who would claim to know Christ must share in his sufferings, Paul tells us. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now let me say it's important for us to see that this description of ministry in verses 9 to 13 is, is impressive, isn't it? It's breathtaking in some ways and it's hard not to look at it and just marvel at Paul. What a guy! But that's not why it's written for us. It's not even written as some sort of biography where we, where we think, gee, Paul had to go through a lot, didn't he? This is written so we, as servants of the gospel, would know the path we too must walk. This is not an extreme picture of Christianity. This is your life. Now, not all will suffer the same or to the same degree, but all must approach life in this direction, to join Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. Humble Christian ministry is all about weakness. Let me uh, quote Don Carson on this passage. He says this, why, why Paul's stance seems so alien to many of us is that we've unwittingly become more like Corinthian Christians than Paul Christians. Many of us are well-to-do and comfortable with little incentive to live vibrantly in anticipation of Christ's return. Our desire for the approval of the world often outstrips our desire for Jesus' well done on that day. The only place to begin to change this deep betrayal of the gospel is at the cross, in repentance, 
and a renewed passion to not only make the gospel of Christ crucified central in our teaching but in our lives as well. I don't think you'll get stronger tests of your approach to ministry than you have in these verses. If you are proud, you will not be able to say the things that Paul says here, that you commit to going without, that you commit to being poorly treated, that you commit to working hard for others, that you commit to responding to curse or persecution or slander with kindness. Pride won't let you do that. Only humility formed at the cross has the power to do that. And so we need to ask God to let the message of the cross have free run in this place so that it will root out our pride and embolden us to humbly serve him. And as we finish, let me just give you the secret to this. Because I think, this, as, I, as I read these verses, I think it's a huge challenge, just almost impossible for us. And yet Paul, right at the start of our passage, gave us the secret. And it's unexpected and surprising, I think. You see this picture of Adam Gilchrist on the front of your outline? Here, there was a purpose, other than to remind you of the ashes. If you look at it carefully, it, it's, a, it's a picture taken at, after the final, or during the final of the last Cricket World Cup, which incidentally Australia won, but that's beside the point. <laughs> And there he's holding up his glove and he's pointing at it. And what he's doing is he scored a a remarkable century after a long, long, long run of pretty disastrous batting. Came out of nowhere and he's pointing to the secret, how he did it. Inside his glove, of all things, is a squash ball. And some some guy had told him, you know what's missing in your batting is you need a squash ball in your glove and it's going to help you in your technique. It seemed ridiculous, but it worked. There is a secret to humble Christian ministry. It's not a matter of walking out of this place and saying, okay, I'm going to do it. The secret is four words in verse 21 of chapter 3. Four words that change everything. All things are yours. All things are yours. And he's not kidding. Look what he goes on to say. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours. The humble Christian walks into this world taking no pride in human achievement, not worrying about status or comparing themselves to others because everything is theirs. Paul is painting it big for us here. He says, you want to know why I serve so humbly? You know why I don't care what you think or even what I think? Because I'm of Christ. And let me tell you, he says, that matters. It matters when it comes to the things that really shape this life when it comes to the world which tries to squeeze us and mould us and demand ultimate allegiance, he says, do you know what the world is to me? It's just a staging point for the world to come. It's the arena in which I serve the king. I know I don't belong here and yet I know I belong to the one who owns this joint. And life, here and now, which which can claim to be worthy of ultimate respect such that we cling to it and, and, and live it cautiously, thinking this is all there is, To me, he says, it is the time the king has given me to serve him. And so I spend that life at the foot of the cross where he has told me to wait. Death, what's the last great enemy, isn't it? It's the tyranny that none of us can escape from. It's a fear that drives many lives, but Paul says, not me. My God is stronger than death. My master walks straight up to death in all his pomp and slays him forever. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, the worst death can do, Paul says, is bring me face to face with my greatest joy. 
present, future. Paul says, I am no victim of circumstances. I am no, no fearful. No, I'm not fearful of what's coming because I know my God is as much control of this moment as he was in the past when he saved me, as he will be when he comes back. I am of Christ. Don't miss this. If you are a Christian, if you have thrown your lot in with Jesus, you walk into this world holding all the aces. If life was a game of trumps, Christians walk into this world holding all the hearts. You are rich. You are free. Free to be his under rower. Free to be a steward of his gospel. Free to be faithful with that gospel. Free to follow him in weakness all the way to glory. All things are yours because you are his. Let's pray.